Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Old school Survivor fans might recognize Ethan as the winner of Survivor Africa, season three, back in 2002. But not only is Ethan a survivor from the reality TV show, he's survived cancer, too, twice. We talk about how life changed when he won a million dollars at 27, but then how he navigated cancer twice, each with gnarly stem cell transplants and the mental and emotional scars they left behind. I think the most valuable part of our conversation is on the back half, when both of us share what we do to tackle the fear and anxiety that comes with uncertainty. I think anyone could benefit from it during these challenging times of the pandemic. So here's the survivor Ethan Zahn on surviving for no time to waste. I went to play in Survivor because of the game of Survivor. I think it's like the best game in the world. It's, it's a game that touches on every part of you as a human being, mental, physical, social, spiritual, environmental, financial, you know, kind of like what cancer does to you as well, challenges you in all those ways. But this, obviously, you're playing for a million bucks and not your life. So there was really fun adventure for me. And it wasn't necessarily about the money for me. It was more about just like going out there, putting myself out there, competing at the, at a, a global scale with millions of people watching. Like that's what I thrive on. Like I'm a soccer player. I was a goalkeeper in soccer. And I just love those kind of high pressure situations. And to be able to do that with everyone watching was such a thrill for me. Yeah. There's such a, you just mentioned being a soccer player. I was going to bring it up because I feel like there's a lot of crossover between um, being an athlete and then being in some sort of a performer role. Definitely. I mean, the parallels are, you know, numerous, but just in terms of like preparation um, leading up to game day and the mental and um, side of it, the physical side of it, uh, performing at your, you know, top uh, level. And, you know, on the flip side of that is I think it's really helpful for uh, because with whether you're an athlete or playing survivor going through cancer, like you're going to win some and you're going to lose some, right? You're going to, you're going to have negative results. You're going to have bad news. And so to be able to bounce back from a bad situation and perform it again at your highest level is something I learned from soccer. I'm a goalkeeper. Like I'm kidding. Everyone either loves me or they hate me. I could have the best game of my life and we still lose and no one remembers me. Right. Um, so therefore, like to be able to lose a game and have to come back the next day and play your best, that's a skill that you learn playing sports. And, um, you know, Survivor is a game of relationships. You know, it's how you work with the other people, how you interact with the other people that determine how well and how far you'll go in that game. You know, it's no different than creating a team to, you know, approach a business opportunity. It's no different than assembling your, your, your team for Survivor, your doctors, the nurses, your caregivers, all that stuff. Um, so there's lots of parallels between sports, survivor, getting through cancer. And, uh, yeah, it's something I think, uh, I learned along the way. Yeah. And I just want to back up a second. Getting through cancer. What? I only know Ethan as a survivor, uh, from the survivor TV show. I don't necessarily know him as a survivor. So, um, yeah, share with me a little bit about, I guess, uh, what happened in 2009. Right. You know, we had no time to waste. I just had to jump right Look into at that. this. Right? Bam. There it is. Boom. There it is. Get that man Not a t-shirt. A <laughs> yep. Fantastic. It's coming. 
Well, after Survivor, you know, I, I you know, gallivanted around, uh, you know, the world trying to make a make a go at it. Uh, I, I co-founded a charity called Grassroots Soccer, which is really exciting. That's what I used the money to start. And uh, so that was kind of my career, my life for eight years after Survivor. And uh, unfortunately, in 2009, I was experiencing some uh, feelings inside my body that weren't I was not comfortable with. I had incredibly itchy skin, night sweats, loss of weight. Um, and I tried every pill, cream, potion, lotion known to man. And then it wasn't until after about four months of wondering what was going on inside my body that I was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer called CD20 positive Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, trust me, like I had never heard of it either, probably all your listeners as well, but basically it's a, a form of blood cancer. Um, and so did the traditional chemotherapy, uh, which didn't work, went to radiation, which also didn't work. And then I went and got an autologous stem cell transplant, which is, uh, you know, was okay. It worked for about 20 months and then I relapsed again. And, you know, for me, getting the news that the cancer returned was deflating. You know, it was exponentially more difficult than the first time around. You know, I had been through a lot of treatment and uh, multiple doctors trying multiple ways of healing me that didn't work. And so I panicked, you know, I freaked out. And uh, like all I craved was survival. And so uh, lucky for me at that time in my life and in times of medical technology, a new smart targeted therapy emerged on the market just when I relapsed. And um, so I got on that experimental new drug, got my cancer into remission. And then I was able to go on to get my second stem cell transplant, this time in uh, an allogeneic one, um, using my brother Lee as the donor. Can you explain to me, okay, I, I just have the association. I've been through chemo. I'm in chemo right now. I've been through radiation. I've mm, had surgeries, um, but I've heard of stem cell transplants and like my association with them is just like, whoa, gnarly, awful. What are they like? The way I s explain a stem cell transplant, it's like a science fiction novel, right? There's At some point in time, some dude was like, okay, Let's remove all the white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets from this guy. Get him down. Get him close to dying as possible. Lock him up in a bubble because it says so he won't get infected and die. And then let's replace all that stuff with someone else's and see what happens. That's what it's like pressing reset on your body. And like I just said, it's like you remove all the white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets from your body, and you do that through high-dose chemotherapy, and you're doing this in a controlled atmosphere, like a bubble, they call it. Um, and then once you're down to zero, then they infuse you with healthy stem cells, which then will get into your bone marrow and reproduce as healthy stem cells that will then get into your body, and hopefully you'll be cancer-free. So you're moving all the cancer cells from your body, replacing them with cancer-free cells um, in hopes that uh, it will cure you of your cancer. And so okay, for me- This is very Deadpool. This is very yeah. like- and listen, okay, I'm sorry. not a doctor. I, Can you tell? Like, I'm, I'm explaining I'm a, it in like, no, like jock terms. I'm intrigued. Keep going because this is bananas. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so the first time I did an autologous stem cell transplant, which means I'm using my body's own stem cells. So I harvested my own stem cells. They kept them on ice for a while until I needed them. And that was the first round and that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't go so well. So then I did it again where you can use another person who has the same, you know, match as you in terms of blood type. And that's, you know, why there are the stem cell donor databases and organizations like Be The Match. Um, 
luckily I had a blood related donor, my brother, and he was a perfect 10 for 10 match. And so therefore my second stem cell transplant, they did the same exact process, but they infused me with someone else's DNA. So I could actually murder someone right now and no one would know because it's my brother's DNA as long as I don't leave a fingerprint. So I burned off all my fingerprints. Yes. Perfect. That was my next question. Um, Okay. So did your brother have to go through the like, we're going to get you down to zero and almost kill you situation? Or they were just like, great. What was was his process like? Yeah. That's a common uh, misconception that it's painful for the donor. It's not even a little bit. It's a little uncomfortable. Basically, you're giving blood and what they do, if you can see, if you were watching me right now, I would shove a needle into my left arm. I would remove the blood. They'd centrifuge it. They'd take all the um, stem cells out and they re- put it back into your right arm. It takes about three hours and uh, then you're good to go. If there's anybody listening right now that's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how easy it was. Like, is there a way that I can donate? And even if I don't know someone that needs it, like what's this donor database situation? How could they find it's out? It's actually easier to get on the stem cell donor database. All it is is a cotton swab on your gums. And then you oh, send wow. that in and then they catalog it. And if someone is an, of need of your stem cells, you'll get a call. And then once you get oh, the wow. call, then you have the decision whether you want to be a donor or not, I would highly hope everyone who donated in the, you know, got swabbed in the first mm-hmm. place would accept the offer because you literally are giving someone the gift of life. You are saving their life. Um, so that's a really wonderful honor in, in my, in my, di- my idea. And people assume that there's tons of people on the database and it's easy to find a match. That is not the case. Only 50% of blood cancer patients that need a transplant can find a match. And if you're of any ethnic descent, like myself, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, which you know, I'm just look like a white dude, but that significantly reduces by 25 to 35% the amount of matches I can find. If I'm like an average white guy living in America, I'm going to find a match. But if you are mixed race, Jewish, have any ethnic descent within you, it's going to be difficult difficult to find a match. So I highly encourage everyone out there to visit organizations like Be The Match, Gift of Life, Love, Hope, Strength. Um, all these organizations have swabbing, swabbing swabbing parties, or you can just get a mailing kit. So um, Okay. Well, this is awesome. So um, I guess on the second stem cell transplant, though, what was the, how did, how long did that process take for you and how painful was that? Yeah, I mean, between the first and second transplants was markedly different because the first transplant I had been through traditional chemotherapy, which you know, you know, just knocks you out, right? Um, it removes the good cells and the bad cells. Well, the second transplant leading up to it, I was on this experimental new drug, part of a clinical trial, which the symptoms and side effects to the chemotherapy were not bad at all. So going into the transplant, I was a lot stronger. And you're in you're in the bubble for about thirty days when you get a transplant. Um, and wait, does that mean like, are we talking like a, like a legitimate, like bubble boy situation where like no physical contact, like, no, you're no, you're in a hypersterile room that's vacuum sealed and anyone coming in or out of the room has to be in full PPP, PPE and, uh, you know, very limited visitors. And, you know, you're cause like you're basically erasing your immune system. Right. And therefore you're very fragile for anything coming in, you know, colds, viruses, all that stuff. So, you know, there's a point during the process where you, you know, you, your entire track from your throat all the way to your asshole is completely just totally destroyed. You can't even swallow. You can't even eat. Um, so you just have, you know, those dental chairs where they suck the spit out of you. Yeah. You're just doing that all day. You're just filling like liters and liters of spit because you can't swallow because there's your entire insert. It's like someone, it's like I swallowed a bag of razor blades down my digestive tract. 
I found that if you, I, I basically got in shape to go into my transplant in terms of mental shape, physical shape, and spiritual shape. And I find those three things really helped me get through the transplant and through cancer in general, not just transplants. Because, you know, when I was an athlete, I always realized that after like um, a visualization session or a meet with a, a sports psychologist, a chiropractic, a massage, like I was a much better athlete. So for me, I'm like, okay, if you're connecting the mind with the body and then spirit, I was a much better athlete. So I took that entire philosophy into my cancer fight with me. Yeah, I 100% uh, subscribe to that belief that one, you know, movement is medicine. And um, although they may not have a ton of evidence-based research today around, um, you know, the impacts of, of maintaining consistent physical activity throughout treatment, both for prevention, but then I think more so during. Um, I think it's the reason why you and I got connected was through our involvement with Active Against Cancer. More so than the physical, though, what you talked about was the mental. And I talk a lot about mindset, um, the importance of uh, maintaining a positive mindset, uh, kind of staying out of the dark places while still being, while, while still acknowledging, you know, it and everything you talked about as like kind of uh, all that that mental, physical, emotional, spiritual prep to like gear you up for battle. Like that's exactly what I subscribe to. Um, I don't necessarily hold on to the hope that all of that will change outcomes, but I know that it will dramatically improve my quality of life. Anybody, athlete or otherwise, can take that same like, I'm gearing up for battle mentality and that will better prepare them for whatever kind of life throws their way. So yeah. So talk me through the mental impacts of cancer and your process and how that affected you then. So when I first diagnosed, you know, there was a lot of, how do I say this, energy and excitement and support around me and what I was going through, right? Which which carried me, and you know, the, the outpouring of support from everyone, you know, around me and all my friends and family, teammates, all that stuff. So that was okay. Um, however, once you're deemed in remission, everyone just disappears. Like everyone's all up in your shit when you're going through it. And then, like when you get sent home with a bag full of pills, and you're in your home and you're alone and you're isolated and you're just there with yourself and your thoughts and no one else is around, that's when shit got scary for me. Like, that is horrible. It's the dump trucks full of uncertainty, the invisible scars that need healing, the loss of uh, close relationships, the fear of relapse, um, the issues with insurance, fertility, dating. Like, that's what happens for a young adult who's going through cancer and survives, right? If you're an older adult, you get cancer, you're 70, 80, fine. You got couple more years to go in your life. You're married. Things are taken care of. If you're a pediatric, you got your parents to take care of you and you're on their insurance. You're not worrying about all that crap. But if you're a young adult, age 15 to 39 years old, and you get cancer and you survive, you got your whole life to live. There's a whole host of issues and things that you have to deal with. So for me, it was the after effects. And it was, I was paralyzed by the fear of relapse and the anxiety of living with that fear. And I ended up just like 
being totally isolated myself, uh, making some silly decisions, destructive choices. I just wanted to be the 27-year-old guy who just won Survivor that didn't have cancer. That's what's, what I wanted to do when I got free you know, and deemed in remission. So I tried to jump back into my life that I was doing before cancer. And um, my friends did too, because we acknowledged that I had cancer, but they were psyched I was back. Let's just jump right back into things. Let's pretend it didn't happen. They didn't know how to talk to me. I didn't know how to talk to them. I had been through this traumatic experience. They couldn't relate to me. And so it's there's a big divide there. So for me to be able to close that divide and create situations where I felt comfortable talking to people about what I was going through, telling the truth of what it's really like to go through camp or what I'm feeling like, how it's impacting me mentally, physically, socially. That's when things started to change for me. And and I started to be able to live a life that I was proud of, I guess you can say. There's this thing around cancer where, you know, people want to give you credit when you quote beat it. And then when you lose or when you die because of it, they say you lost your fight. And I hate that because I don't believe there's a connection between the two. You're you're nodding. Yeah. I mean, I think the general perception of cancer in this world that there are winners and there are losers. You either win against cancer and stay alive or lose against cancer and you die. But what everyone doesn't understand is that there's a middle ground. Like I did everything I could possibly do to beat cancer and I did, but then it came back. And that's okay too. And now, you know, we're living with cancer. You know, they're starting to treat cancer like a um like a disease that you, you know, just like a a disease you have to live with. A chronic disease. It's a chronic, chronic, yeah. Chronic disease. So like, you know, to be able to reframe cancer and look at it, uh, that's more and more, especially with technology and medical research and smart targeted therapy and immunotherapy, people are living with cancer. So now we just need to look at it. This there aren't winners and losers. It's yeah. just you are living with cancer and that that's what it is. So I think you're really smart with trying to let's t- erase that uh, terminology. If I don't make it, it's not for lack of effort. It's not for lack of trying and it's not for lack of fight. I'm going to do everything I can. And the rest of it, if I'm really honest about it, it's a roll of the dice, you know, and that's really hard for people to, I think, accept because it forces them to confront their own mortality because it's like, wait, what? No, I can control like the when I die. And if you died before you wanted to, well, then there there must have been something that you didn't do. And it's like, no, man, none of us know how much time we have, right? And that's yeah. the whole message of no time to waste is like, it's not just me, guys. It's all of us. The concept of acceptance, right? I think it's applicable to what's going on in the world today as well. When the pandemic hit, like people couldn't accept the fact that this is going to be the way the world is for the next 12 to 18 months. So what ended up happening is they're not accepting what's really going on. And then there's this frantic uh, race to be productive, to try Zoom classes, to go online, to everything. is just, So all this like unpredictability is causing anxiety and the anxiety is causing like issues with everyone, right? And that's because you're living in the denial phase. Same with cancer. Like, I didn't want to accept that there's a cancer inside my body trying to kill me, but I had to in order to move on to the next phase of the process, which is how do I want to map out and live my life for the next year, right? So being able to accept what's going on and then being able to map out how you want to live after you accept it is a huge part of cancer, a huge part about the pandemic, living in isolation. And in addition to that, what happened to me was I was um, ruminating on 
these destructive thoughts and what I like to call these what if scenarios, like you just mentioned it a, a little bit where like after cancer, I'm like, okay, well, what if the cancer comes back? What if I die? What if the chemo doesn't work? What if I can't find a wife? What if I can't get it up? You know, like all these things you, you, you think about. And I was just ruminating on them to the point where I, I couldn't get out of my own head and it was just debilitating. So my wife and I created a strategy where when I have a what if scenario, I will literally take that what if scenario. Let's say, okay, what if I get COVID? Let's put it to people who are listening, may not be cancer survivors. What if I get COVID? I write down on a piece of paper and then I literally list out exactly what I will do if I get COVID. Okay, I'll get the test, I'll isolate, I'll call my mom, I'll drink fluids, I'll take whatever, aspirin. So now all of a sudden, if that what if scenario comes into my head, instead of ruminating on it, I know exactly what I'm going to do because I already wrote it down and figured it out and just filed it away. So yeah. like I would do this multiple times a day. I have filofaxes and shoeboxes full of post-it notes of my what-if scenarios and the plan of attack. And you said, you could get hit by a car tomorrow. Right. Like I could get hit by a car tomorrow. But if I spent every minute of every day thinking about the idea that I may get hit by a car tomorrow, I just wasted my day. Totally. And we are no time to waste right here. So, so let's stop wasting days. If you have a destructive thought, get it out on paper, map out how you'll deal with it, file it away, and move on with your life. Yeah, from a research perspective, the data says, you know, um, yeah, I want to know if, if if you're fearing an event, right, and mm -hmm. that you should remain highly optimistic and positive when you are kind of distanced from it. Because it will exactly like you just said, the fear and the ruminating and the uncertainty has the high potential to take you out of the present moment and basically make you waste your minutes, waste your time. Yeah. Right. So what they say, though, is you remain hopeful and optimistic. You basically when it enters your mind, you just say, you know what, I'm going to deal with that later, but I'm going to I'm going to kind of stay in the positive and stay hopeful. Um, but it, there's no point to me thinking about that right now because it's a long way away. Right. Right, because then you're reliving that horrible moment over and over and over Correct. until you get yeah. to that moment, and you might not even have bad results. Well, what they say, though, what the data says is then, though, as you approach the event, and then as you get right next to it, you do a complete 180, and you go right towards, which is what you just described, the worst case scenario, yeah. and you address it. Hmm. And you, instead of staying in that kind of hopeful, optimistic state, which can set you up for the rug getting pulled out from under you, yep. which you and I having, or anyone that's experienced trauma knows well. Um, so you go the complete opposite and you basically do what you just said. Whether, whatever your challenge is, not cancer, not COVID, whatever, if you're applying for a new job and you may or may not get it, like that's an, a scenario where you can do a what if scenario. Like what if I don't get this job? Well, okay. And then you list out exactly what you're going to do if you don't get the job. But don't think about every single day if I'm going to get the job or not. It's just going to ruin your day. Um, but talking to people, right? Like there's nothing more empowering than the truth. And I found this with the people that surrounding me. Everyone just, we all just want to help you. Like everyone was competing for the same task of like helping Ethan, I hate to talk to myself in the third person, but like at my family, my friends, mm -hmm. my girlfriend at the time, the doctors, the nurses, everyone's trying to take care of me and get me back to health. But if I didn't tell them how I was feeling and what I needed to become 
what I needed to feel healthy and get healthy, they would have never known. So to be able to have that conversation, like often the things that I'm feeling, fear, loss, anger, sadness, happiness, laughter, are the same exact feelings that my caregivers are feeling. But if you're not talking about it, you'll never know. And then you just, then you create this little barrier and these boundaries where you need to erase those boundaries. Because when you're going through something like cancer or any health challenge, you know, you are laser focused on getting better. And how can I best set myself up to get better, faster. And that's by being truthful to those around me and those taking care of me. I think that's really important. And I always give the example, like, imagine if you're in the ocean and you have a a fun little beach ball and you try to keep the beach ball underwater. You can only keep the beach ball underwater for so long before it's going to start like creeping up and doing this. Same with your thoughts and your feelings and your emotion. If you keep those swallowed up and inside your body, they're going to start creeping out in little ways that you just can't control you know, mm-hmm. destructive ways. So don't be a beach ball, you know, let people know how you're feeling because you just can't keep a beach ball underwater for that long. You're now, what, 10, 10 plus years out, eight, eight years out, right? Um, so you've gotten some, some time and distance from the last recurrence. How are you handling the uncertainty now? Anything else you use? You know, um, I mean, time does heal. Uh, I have to admit that the further I got away from diagnosis, the easier it is to deal with some of the, you know, stress and anxiety that comes along with it. I uh, found a wonderful woman to marry and uh, we moved to the middle of the woods in New Hampshire, just like you made some lifestyle changes. So all these little, little things to help put me on track and create a better balance in my life was huge for me. Living in New York City just was not healthy um, for me personally. Um, but you know, other things I've relied on definitely nature. Um, I got into the whole cannabis CBD thing, you know, as a, as a competitive athlete my whole life, I never really got into that stuff recreationally. But when I was in New York city and they were like, I was literally taking like five pills. I was taking Ativan, Zofran, Percocet, Ambien, um, and like folic acid just to get to bed at night, then I have to pop an Adderall in the morning to get up. So it just was not a, I did, I was sick of all the synthetics. I was feeling horrible. So I got introduced to cannabis and all, and it was a huge help for me. I could sleep, I could eat. I was, you know, just a nicer person and I didn't eat all the synthetics. So that was an interesting journey for me. And so after cancer, um, I got more into the CBD side of things. So, um, yeah, so I, it really helped me. Like when I was talking about these ruminating thoughts and I was just getting consumed with fear and anxiety, you know, taking CBD every day, like a multivitamin has been a huge help for me. Exercise has been a huge part of my recovery. And I'm not talking like, you know, I set some pretty lofty exercise goals, but they don't have to be that big for, you know, getting to the point where I could achieve those goals was therapeutic for me. Um, you know, So I would set up like, you know, six, five minute sessions throughout the day. You know, I'm going to do, you know, 20 bodyweight squats. I'm going to do five pushups. I'm going to do toe, you know, heel raises, whatever it is, lift cans of soup. Um, And so then at the end of the day, I look back, I'm like, holy shit. Like I felt like so unproductive. I didn't even do anything. But look, I worked out six times for five minutes. So these little mini exercise goals that you can, that are achievable um, mentally, make you feel a lot better than if you're going to go try to work out for 30 minutes and you can't even make five. So those little strategies for me to build myself back up. And that worked the same with just daily tasks as well. Like if I was having a boring sick day and you're stuck in isolation, you're bored out of your skull, you've looked at Netflix, you have nothing to do. 
like I would literally write down everything I had to do from I'm going to answer an email, I'm going to call my mom, I'm going to read the newspaper, I'm going to eat a bagel, I'm going to go work out for five minutes. And then at the end of that day, I'd look back and say, holy shit, look at all the things I achieved today. So mentally, it just was a better situation for me to put myself in and help me get through a boring, sick day in a structured way that was achievable and made me feel better at the end. These are great, these are great strategies, Ethan. Making these like grand sweeping huge like life-changing goals like that it's far more impactful you can potentially get there but it's far more impactful for you to make kind of small meaningful changes and just be consistent with it the consistency routine yeah i would go to the gym and not work out just i would walk to the gym for this just to go through the process of walking to the gym before i even worked out i did that a lot um i sometimes i would go in and just sit in there i didn't even do anything i'd sit in the gym and do nothing I have a question for you. Like you talked about your work with uh, Headspace. What, so when you're in a dark moment or mood, what do you do to get yourself out of it? I would like to say that I like journal and get it out. But if I'm really honest, you know, um, I've had a very tough time uh, journaling and like using that as an outlet because it's, I think it's some weird form of avoidance where like I don't want to put pen to paper. I'm so grateful that I have, you know, producing this podcast and, uh, you know, finding really well-aligned companies and conferences and events that I want to support where I do speaking engagements. And through those things, like, I can lean in as far as I want right now and, you know, get as distracted as I want with the driving force of getting a message out that I know is helping people. Keep doing what you're doing because like the the details of your life are helping other people. And I found for me that focusing on the plight of another human being helps you heal, right? And I live by the saying these days to never let a crisis go to waste because it's an opportunity to do some really important things. You took this horrible crisis. You got a really awesome podcast about it. So for me, I had a horrible crisis and then I, you know, chose to make my battle public just like you're doing. And so to have some, to understand that my story has helped others get diagnosed earlier or they saw it and they felt comfort knowing someone else is going through what they're going through, or it was for a caregiver that showed someone else or helping other people manage their cancer care. That's been the most rewarding part for me. So I, I often encourage people that like, yeah, you know, worrying about the outcomes like you keep mentioning is is not necessarily the greatest strategy but you know if you can focus on using what's going on in your life a crisis to help others it can help distract you from the reality of what's going on in your own life it's helpful to other people it heals you on the inside there are only two things in life that we can be absolutely certain about number 1 we're all going to have to die number 2 we all have to live until we die so how do you want to live? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? And that's a good way to frame a way you want to map out your life. What do you want your legacy to be, Ethan? I would like to be known for, um, you know, someone who used uh, their crisis to do good things in the world. And that's happened multiple times in my life, whether it was my dad dying of cancer when I was 14. I played pro soccer in Africa and witnessed my friends die of AIDS. So I started an AIDS charity, Grassroots Soccer. We're in 60 countries now. We've graduated 13 million people from the program. 
pretty awesome. It's a pretty good legacy. Then with the whole cancer stuff, you know, like I said, the most rewarding part of my whole cancer journey has been getting the, the emails or whatever saying, listen, I saw you on People Magazine talking to this person on this TV show. And I had that same itch and I went to the doctors and I got diagnosed with cancer. So for me, that's my legacy is helping other people get diagnosed early or manage their cancer care. So that's been uh, awesome. And my cat. Okay. So if you really want to maximize your moments, you could pitch in and help us get the word out. Just rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That's it. Oh, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss future episodes and bonus content. For more motivation, head to notimetowasteproject.com or join the squad on Instagram at no time to waste project. Grazie mille. <laughs>